ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Saturday Nights with Daisy. I'm Daisy Cousins, and I am thrilled to now be appearing on ADH-TV every week, two nights a week. And on Saturday nights, you are really in for a treat. Each Saturday, I'm going to bring you some of the world's most interesting, in-demand individuals from all over the planet to talk about not only their unique perspectives on the world at large, but also their unique selves. And I could not be more thrilled at the caliber of my inaugural guest. Joining me this evening is a young woman, only 21 years old, who is already well and truly making her mark on conservative commentary and politics. She's a journalist, commentator, and social media sensation who has written for multiple publications, including the Daily Mail and the Daily Telegraph. She is also one of the leading lights of TV network GB News and even ran for office in 2021. And believe it or not, she's also now a reality TV star. So many achievements for one so young. It is a privilege and a pleasure to introduce you to the gloriously versatile, endlessly fascinating, the wonderful Sophie Corcoran. Sophie, Thank you so much for joining me. How are you this evening? God, that was quite an introduction, Daisy. <laughs> I hope that I actually uh, live up to the introduction. Of course, no, it's a privilege to be here in sunny Sydney as well. I'm actually here in Australia, so very happy to be here. Yes, it's absolutely wonderful to have you here and to be on the same continent instead of, you know, on separate, separate areas of the globe. Now, look, Sophie, I'm going to ask you, I guess, what's a fairly obvious question to start with, but it is nevertheless an important one. You're 21, you're a woman, and you're conservative. That is really not something you see very often, let alone in the public square speaking as fearlessly as you do. How have you managed to resist that relentless pull of left-wing doctrine that your generation is endlessly subjected to? Well, I mean, I think my origin story is quite a strange one because not only am I a woman, a young woman who is conservative, I'm also extremely working class. I come back from, come from a working class community in a town called Thurrock in Essex in the UK, which you can probably tell by my accent, to be honest. And I'm also, so I was born deaf because I was born two months early. I have epilepsy and I'm neurodivergent as well. So I tick pretty much all of their boxes, which is why <laughs> they hate me so much, to be honest with you, um, because I'm everything that they claim to be actually disadvantaged um, but no I think you know conservatism for me is a is all about ambition and I think that's one of the most important aspects of, of politics for me and conservative politics is about it doesn't matter where you start in life because you know for me to be quite honest with you I, you know I went to one of the worst schools in the country I, I really stood no chance let's be honest in the grand scheme of things of what you think but to have ambition and to be able to, you know what, it doesn't matter where you start, you know, it matters where you end up and that you really, if you put your mind to it, you, you can do anything, no matter what cars that you've been dealt with in life. And that to me is what sums up conservative politics, is that aspiration, it's that, that drive to want to do more and do better for you. You know, the left see me as a token, they see me as a victim, they see me as someone who, you know, should just end up working in KFC for the rest of their life. 
and that's not not what I wanted for myself. You know, I was I was dealt the hand, you know, the cards that I was dealt with when when I was young. But I've tried my best, at least, you know, despite the many challenges that I, I face and continue to face, um, you know, to to make something of myself and then to also, you know, help other people because people in working class communities, you know, we're not we're not victims. You know, we want to do more, we want to work hard, and you know, we want to you know create a better life for ourselves and our children. And that, to me, is what conservatism is, and anything other than that is not a life that. I want to live. Mm, so it seems then that you've always been naturally conservative then rather than some event that you experience or piece of information that you discovered that caused you to take that right turn, so to speak. Yeah, so I've been conservative since I was young. I joined the Conservative Party when I was 15 years old. So I kind of got in this you know, really young, but I've always been naturally conservative because I've always had the cards stacked against me mm. in, in a sense, you know. so. For me, that ambition, that drive, and that you know, wanting to do more, and wanting to prove people wrong. You know, everybody writes you off, but you think, you know what? No, I've got you know hard work. I've got talent. I can, you know, I can make something of myself, no matter you know what the scenarios are. And you know, the ability to to come from nothing and then come to something is is you know what I was faced with. You know, I either chose to, you know, be a victim and you know work in KFC, not get any grades or whatever, or you know, become a conservative <laughs> media star, so here I am. <laughs> um, but no, that was just you know, the cards that I was dealt with which led to me becoming conservative. Yeah, and it really is a tricky hand that you were dealt, um, you know, physically and circumstantially. It, it's incredible um, what you've achieved. And as you say, you know, if ambition is such a natural quality to you, I mean, of course, you're probably going to lead rightwards. And like, I relate to you, uh, Sophie, because I'm, fun fact, I'm also epileptic. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We are, we are fellow epileptics. So, you know, I, like you, also tick, aside from, you know, woman, I'm also um, epileptic. So I tick one of their boxes. Um, uh, which is one of the reasons they hate me, but they really do seem to hate you. I, I mean, I've seen some of the stuff. I had a look last night, the things that are said about you on Twitter by supposedly tolerant leftists, and I, I'm not actually going to repeat it on this program. Like, the, the, the type of filth that is there would absolutely take your breath away. I think it really shows the hypocrisy of identity politics on the left, doesn't it? That you, someone who ticks so many of their boxes to be a, a protected group that no one should ever say anything bad about or criticize, but because you have the wrong politics and you stick up to them, then it's open season um, in terms of abusing you. I mean, the hypocrisy is staggering, isn't it? Yeah, so I mean, it's without a doubt that all of the conservative commentators in the UK, I'm the one that gets the most abuse out of all of them. And it's obviously mm. because, you know, I'm the most different. You don't get young conservative female commentators in the UK, especially ones that are working class. I mean, you don't really get any working class commentators in the UK and that have my background and my story. And they hate me because I'm everything that they claim to be and they're not. You know, a lot of these left wingers are extremely rich, privileged people who have never, you know, had to overcome a challenge in their life and, you know, funded by the bank of mum and dad. And that for me is the only reason of why and how you could ever end up being left wing. Because for any of us that have actually experienced some real challenge in life, you learn that right being right wing is the way to go. Um, so, you know, it was never some sort of, I, I just can't even, you know, begin to think about even being left wing. To me, it's just so stupid and so alien, but because they've never had to face the challenges that I have and will never have to, they will, um, inevitably be left wing but they hate me because of it and a lot of people say oh 
you know, how can you be disabled when you're right wing? I'm like, oh, so it just doesn't count. So like, I don't count in your little diversity quota just because I'm right wing. It's quite funny actually, um, but yeah. I think, I think it's very, very funny. Um, the way that whole thing kind of goes round about, and I've experienced it for years in my commentary as well. Um, and look, speaking of, of conservative politics, you did something that I could never do. You are so much braver than me in the fact that you actually ran for local office as a Conservative Party candidate at the 2021 Thurrock Council elections. What was that experience like? That blows my mind. I, I mean, I, I am a, a lot older than you and not at any point in my life have I ever thought to have the guts to do that. I think it's so impressive. What was that experience like for you? Um, well, you know, it's a real eye-opening experience. It was the first ever election that I could ever vote in. And ever since I was a little girl, ever since I was 15, I said, the first election I can vote in, I will run in. And I did. Um, so obviously I was supposed to run in 2020 when I was 18, but the election got cancelled because of COVID. So mm -hmm. it was 2021 when I was 19, but still being a teenager. And not only did I do that, the person that I was up against was the leader of the local Labour Party. So I kind of picked the best one to go up against. I thought, why not go all or nothing? You know, doing the hardest way is the best way to learn. And so I did that and he was very scared. So, you know, <laughs> he came up to me this year and was like, if I didn't go back and campaign in my area, I would have lost to you. And that meant, in a sense, that he would come into my area in a, in a safe seat that he should have won, and he wasn't in other places. So we ended up winning pretty much everything but two that year. Um, so I've, I've run twice, actually, but I've never done it properly in terms of running in a seat that, that I can win. And they did ask me to do it this year, but obviously I was in a reality show and all sorts. And then I, so I said no to running. And then they rang me literally two days after I got out of Rise and Fall. and was like, please, we need someone to run in this. And so I said, <laughs> OK, because look, I'm a team player. You know, I will always put party first and myself second. And I, and I have done and it's worked for me. But, you know, I'm a very ambitious person. And ambition has been a massive part of my life. And eventually when I do get older to the point, you know, you know, 25, 26, I'll start running properly and look into running into Parliament. You know, I am too young. I mean, I don't believe that, you know, 20 year olds should be, you know, in public office because, you know, you need to get the life experience. You need to learn things. It's one of the reasons I'm out here in Australia. But I have a very unique version of conservatism that isn't really matched in the UK at the minute. My, I think conservatism in putting working people at its core, I think conservatism is the best way to go for working people in Britain, but it's my type of conservatism that I really want to push, you know, not doing net zero, getting tough on immigration, getting tough on welfare, you know, building programmes that, you know, raise ambition, lowering tax, getting rid of things like inheritance tax because we get more money to the Treasury that it eventually helps the lives of working people and really making working people the centre of conservatism. And that's kind of why I've grown so popular in the UK. It's very sort of Margaret Thatcher-centric. She did a very similar thing. Her version of conservatism was conservatism with working people at its core. And that's kind of what I believe in. And our party's kind of gone away from that a little bit now. It's sort of the old traditional sort of conservatism, very net zero, because, you know, the people that are in charge, you know, Rishi Sunak, you know, is a multi-millionaire, billionaire. So... Yeah, but my version of conservatism, which, you know, I'm going to be honest, I have political ambitions. Why on earth would I come on shows in the UK and everywhere and moan about X, Y and Z and then not put my money where my mouth is when it can finally count and actually do things that make a difference? Of course I have political ambitions. You know, I talk about what I want to do now, what I find good and what I find wrong. But as soon as I'm ready and as soon as I'm old enough and experienced enough, yeah, of course I'll go into politics. There's, there's no doubt about it.
I think that is absolutely fantastic, Sophie. It, it is so impressive. Um, and it's interesting, you know, you mentioned very strongly working people being at the centre of conservatism, which is, is something that I totally agree with. I mean, I've always thought um, that for working class people um, and, and for, for women and anyone who, you know, feels they've been disadvantaged in some way, conservatism is the way to go. Because as you say, it is about ambition and also it's about the freedom of the individual to shock horror, keep your own money, you know, <laughs> without the government, you know, taking so much of it and not getting bound to restrictive ideologies that say you have to think a certain way um, and say certain things. So speaking of working people, uh, it's interesting, isn't it, over the last sort of five or six years globally in politics, there has been a demographic shift when it comes to conservatism. And in the context of the UK, I remember the 2019 election looking, I was in um, Niagara Falls with my husband actually, and we were spending our holiday poring over politics, of course, because we're both, you know, political nerds. Um, but it was like this ocean of blue on the electoral map with this tiny little red dot uh, where London was, which is sort of, you know, the um, socio-economically um, advantaged areas compared to the rural areas. And I thought, this is the greatest illustration, physical illustration I've ever seen, I think, of that demographic shift. What do you think has spawned that? Well, obviously, you know, Brexit was, let's make no mistake, Brexit was a big part of that referendum. And one of the things I've always found with Brexit is, is always the reason why they've never been able to get over Brexit. And, you know, we're talking seven years on. I mean, I was literally in, like, early high school when, you know, this debate first came around and the vote happened. They've never been able to move on from it because it is the first time in the history of the UK that the working class have beaten the establishment. Because when you give people the choice, and the same will happen if we take a, a referendum on net zero, which I think we should, and that's the reason why they're scared to do a referendum on net zero, because they know full well that when you give the working class a chance to vote, they won't choose socialism, they won't choose the EU. So when they gave the working class that voice and they used it and we won, ever since then there's just been this lack of acceptance, this idea that they were too stupid to know what they voted for, they couldn't have possibly known what they were voting for when it comes to Brexit, you know, we have to do it again, we should never have given it to the people to vote. And you know what I found really funny actually recently, because we've got these Trump indictments coming up have come out and all of the Remainers in the UK are like so happy about Trump because <laughs> you know he's like this villain to democracy I'm like hang on a minute you spent the better part of at least two years but for some of you seven years disrespecting the democratic will of the people and what I believe is probably the biggest gross disrespect to Parliament as an institution that I've certainly seen in my lifetime. I know of course it's very short so there's there's not much I could have seen but it's, it's very hypocritical. I'm like none of you people believe in democracy especially when that democracy comes from the voices of working class people and that's exactly why they've never been able to get over Brexit and they will never be able to get over it because the first time the working class won and as they should do and that's what we saw again in 20. All of those people were outraged at the likes of Labour and the Lib Dems who for so long have gotten away with pretending that they care about working class people even though they never have. 
And they sat there and looked at them and said, oh, you were too stupid to know what you're voting for. How dare you? Those voters were rightly outraged, said, you know, how dare you? You know, why shouldn't I have a say? You know, why do you disrespect me? Why do you? And that's the fact of the matter is, is that Labour view working class people as racists, as stupid, as bigots. They don't respect working class people. They haven't respected working class people. In the UK, we've just accepted this custom that, oh, Labour for the working class and the Tories when in actual fact that's not true at all and we're starting to see this pattern with a load of different demographics it's not just working class people it's for example the Muslim community in the UK for a long time the Muslim community voted Labour and if you go to them and say why do you vote Labour they don't agree with anything you think you know you have great you know family values you believe in you know family values you don't think people should be able to identify as frying pans and whatever else <laughs> why on earth are you voting Labour they don't believe in anything you do you were just voting Labour because, you you know, it's a generational thing. You know, my granddad voted Labour, my dad voted Labour, so I have to. But when you go and knock on doors as a Conservative and say, why are you voting Labour? They can never tell you why. And that's how we get to change people's minds. And so, of course, that uh, that blue wall shifted. And Conservatives have or have a great opportunity to. Uh, I don't think it's something that Rishi Sunak has... has at the moment, he's starting to do it a little bit more now. I think he started to wake up and smell the coffee a little bit. Mm. Um, but in the earliest days of his premiership, we've got a great opportunity as Conservatives to finally be the party of the working class, which is the party that we always were. And it always makes me laugh because Margaret Thatcher's villainised amongst, you know, working class people. And I always, uh, well, that's what they say, that the working class hated Margaret Thatcher. And I said, well, the fact of the matter is she won three elections and it would not have been possible for her to win those three elections by the margins that she did without the support of working class people. Mm -hmm. And the fact of the matter is the Conservatives have been in charge way longer than Labour have and that is because they're unequivocally the party of the working class. So I think it's time that we, we really start to, you know, demand that we have, you know, that status. We are, and strongly, and we should be proudly the party of the working class people because we don't believe in, you know... If we look at what Labour have produced while they're in power, you know, we can listen to them say their manifestos all they like, but if we turn to the places where they're actually in charge in Britain at the moment, we have Wales where the NHS has got the longest waiting times in history. So for them to come out and string um, the party of the NHS is absolutely rubbish because mm. the part where Labour are in charge of the NHS is the part where the NHS is failing the most. And then you also look to London. I mean, knife crime and all of that is sky high, but the ULES charges and the LTNs are things that directly hurt the pockets of working class people. ULES is what Margaret is, in my view, is worse than the poll tax, which obviously, you know, caused Margaret Thatcher a lot of problems, because that is a tax that is purposely targeted and only targeted at the, you know, the least wealthy people in society. The people that can't afford to get a new car to comply with ULES are the same people that can't afford £60 a week in, in charges. So it's a poverty trap. And then he's increasing the travel costs. So everything he has done, he has deliberately made the choice to make the lives of working class Londoners more miserable and make them a lot poorer. Mm. So in my view, the Conservatives are the party that are sticking up for working class people, or indeed my version of what Conservatism would be but I think we've got a greater opportunity to, to to move into that I think there's there's more where we can go I think we need to start getting tougher on immigration we need to start getting rid of all of this green nonsense because we don't want net zero in this country mm. the only net zero I want in this country is net zero immigration and that's it <laughs> that's that it 
That sounds like a good a good kind of um, net zero, certainly, especially for the UK with that mass immigration problem that's been going on for such a long time. Um, you know what? You make such an interesting point about how there's an opportunity now for conservatives to rebrand themselves as the party of the working class, given these demographic shifts. I find there is such a strange opposition to that, oddly enough, among sort of urban conservative politicians. We have a, a situation in Australia uh, currently where at the last election, the Liberal Party, uh, which is our supposedly conservative party, the coalition government, um, they lost, obviously, and they lost a number of what they call the blue ribbon liberal seats, which is sort of the inner city affluent sort of, you know, where posh people live, <laughs> basically. Um, and they gained, though, uh, what, well, what they lost also were a lot of votes from the Liberal Party in, you know, more conservative um, areas. They have this golden opportunity to go out to, say, the western suburb of Sydney and court voters who voted for right-wing minor parties out there in massive numbers. I mean, there's an electorate in Sydney where three minor right-wing parties got something like 25% of the entire vote of that electorate. And I'm thinking, well, why is the Liberal Party not getting those votes? But Sophie, they're still on and on about these blue ribbon Liberal seats, which are filled with people who are never going to vote for them again. I think there's a snobbery, isn't there, amongst some conservatives, urban conservatives, about the working class. It's like they don't think they're a good enough class of voter for them. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, we see that here in the UK. I mean, I think I think Rishi Sunak has given up, to be quite honest. But he has started to come out in the last week saying, you know, I'm going to review ULES, I'm going to review LTNs, because he realises that the core voter base is working class people uh, for, for the Conservatives. But there's a lot of these sort of upper class Conservatives that are really into this whole net zero thing, because, of course, they're not ever going to be in a position where, you know, £60 a week for them is nothing, but £60 a week from people in my community is their entire food shop. Do you know what I mean? So they don't sort of, they can't really connect with, with voters. But I feel like there's this, there's this fear at the moment of being really actually conservative. And we've got a real problem in British politics at the moment. We've got a Labour Party that don't respect the working class. We've got Conservatives that aren't conservative. And we've got Liberal Democrats that have never been Liberal or Democratic in their lives. So... It just doesn't make sense. There's nowhere where for voters to go. But I don't know why nationally conservatives are scared to put their foot down and do things that they've been doing, you know, for decades. Why are we trying to move into a direction, you know, for people? And this is what I don't get with Rishi Sunak, especially. He's trying to get votes of people who, no matter what he does, are never going to vote for him at the expense of people who have supported this party forever but are no longer going to do it because we're rising taxes, we're doing net zero and we've, we've become a shell of what the Conservative Party was. Mm. I don't get why he's doing that. Why are we trying to go after voters who, no matter what we do, are never going to vote Conservative because, you know, they're woke, green-haired loonies and they'll never tick, <laughs> they'll never put their cross in, in, the, in the blue box at the expense of people that have backed this party through and through and through. I don't... It doesn't make good strategy to me, which is why I think we can win the next general election because Labour are useless. Mm. And we as a party, we have a lot to offer. I believe we have a lot to offer, but it's whether he wants it or not. And for us activists and, you know, local councillors and even, you know, MPs in marginal seats, it's, you know, it's quite frustrating because mm. there's nothing we can do. No, exactly. It must be so frustrating for you. I, I totally understand. And in fact, you, you wrote an article in 2021 for iNews 
which was despairing at the state of the Tory party in the UK. And you spoke about how it had let down young people. Um, and you said a few things that I can uh, certainly relate to given for the Liberal Party in Australia. And I'll just quote you. You said, how can this party claim to be the party of low tax when taxation levels are due to reach their highest in 70 years? How can this party claim to be the party of liberty and freedom when, for the past two years, they have stripped back even our most basic freedoms? How can this party claim to be the party of personal responsibility when they have created a nanny state that polices what people eat, where they go, and with whom? Those are such wonderfully strong words. Do you have anything you'd like to elaborate on that? I think my thinking of that is, you know, when it comes to election time, we go out on the doors and we knock and we tell these promises. And, and for, for, for ever since I was 15 years old, don't forget, I've been knocking on doors, doing leaflets. You know, I wasn't in the media thing. I've, I'm a born and bred politics girl. I've only really got into the media thing. You know, I'm a proper activist. I'm mm. out there all the time. Um, how can I sit there and knock on someone's door and say, we're going to be the party that, you know, keeps your tax low, stops immigration, does this, when in fact, we you know, we've been in charge for 30 years and we haven't done any of it. And there is no reason why we haven't done any of it, because the voters want it. And that's what I don't get. Why are they scared to do something that the voters want? Most British people want us to get a grip of immigration. Most British people want us to lower tax. And most British people want us to scrap net zero. So why aren't they doing it? Because ultimately in politics, the only people that you should be accountable for are the electorate that represent you. Because at the end of the day, if they don't vote you, then your mortgage is gone. Because your job that pays your mortgage is is out the window but for some reason and this is where I would differ if I was in charge to a lot of the politicians now is that they are so worried mm. about what other countries think of Britain I don't care what people what global leaders around the world think of Britain I couldn't honestly give two crap <laughs> what I care about is the people that are paying tax in this country and the people that are living in this country the people that are working in this country and my citizens that have voted me in I don't care about foreign bureaucrats who I've got nothing to do with and I've got nothing to do with their people and they're not the people at the end of the day that have given me the honour to do this job that pays my mortgage and puts food on the table I don't care about them I care about the British people and that's it but for some reason a lot of these politicians especially those that the top of the Conservative Party, Rishi Sunak, Alok Sharma, all of these guys, they only care about what happens when they go to Davos. In actual fact, the words of Keir Starmer when he went to Davos is that he prefers Davos to Westminster. Oh. So move to Switzerland then. Don't become a Prime Minister of this country when you don't care about the people in this country. You only care about bureaucrats in, in Davos. Go, go to Davos. Leave. Yeah leave because <laughs> your job is to look after people here and that's where I think we've gone so wrong in politics I think globalization has dragged our countries to be so scared about what other other countries think of them do you think Russia and China give a crap about what we think about them no they don't mm -hmm. they just get on with it and although you know what some of the things they're doing isn't right I, I kind of have respect for the fact that they do what they think is best for their people I think we need to start doing that as well you know we're not getting rid of these 
you know, immigration targets and all of, you know, the illegal immigration here, despite the fact that every single year since I was born in this country, for every election that has ever been fought, the number one thing that the Conservatives say is we're going to stop immigration. The reason why we haven't done that is because we're too scared about what Emmanuel Macron thinks. I don't care what he thinks. I really couldn't <laughs> care what he thinks. I, you know, you, you, you serve the British people and for, now we're starting to serve the globalists. And that's where nationally in politics, Britain has gone wrong, but almost every country in the West has gone wrong as well. We're too scared about upsetting another country when in actual fact the people we should really be scared of are the people that vote us in. Well, exactly, Sophie. I mean, the vanity of politicians um, I find just so exasperating. I, I think it's exactly the same with Australian politicians. That's why in the last term of government, the coalition finally jumped on the net zero bandwagon after, you know, admirably, stoically resisting it for years. I mean, our former Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, actually brought a lump of coal into Parliament at one point and said, this is coal, don't be scared of it. Next minute, he's flipped and is on the net zero bandwagon. I 100% think it's because Australia, those politicians are so scared about what other countries think of them and about what they think of them at Davos that they adopted this ridiculous policy. So, you know, definitely a lot of vanity among some conservative politicians, that is absolutely for sure. Now, you have recently done something that I think is so cool. You are, in fact, a reality television star in Channel 4's new show, Rise and Fall. Can you tell us what this really wonderful looking venture is all about? Yeah, so good news actually, update. So um, when I was flying to Australia, so the Monday that I was on a flight to Sydney, um, I was actually supposed to be at an event in London called the uh, National Reality Television Awards, but I of course wanted to come see you amazing Aussies, but Rise and Fall did in fact win Best Social Experiment Show. So wow, that's so exciting. Um, but I was on the plane to Sydney having the best time, about to come out here and see you wonderful people and be in this wonderful country so I kind of had the you know the, the better hand really to be honest but um so Rise and Fall was a reality show on Channel 4 and it was a social experiment show and now I'm going to be honest when they first approached me I said um, I was being a bit of a snob to be honest I was like no I'm, I'm a proper political commentator I don't do that thing but then I also realized I was like you know I missed out a lot of uh, you know my teenage years because of COVID and I thought this is going to be something that I can do that I will never ever forget and I don't think I'll ever ever forget it and another reason why I wanted to do it is because reality TV and even sadly in the UK news TV women are always portrayed in one way it's only ever about the way that you look and we've got I don't know if you have it in, uh, in a version of Australia but we have a program in the UK called Love Island Mm, and I know um, Love Island. Yeah. So basically, they get like the dumbest women physically possible, <laughs> and put them on this island where they like beg themselves out for men. And now that show sort of come out when I was in school, and that show did you know an enormous amount of damage to my generation, massively. You know, there were lots of girls that would be embarrassed about you know trying to be smart and trying to be academic and do things and it all all of a sudden you know all came about you know trying to be an influencer and, and trying to do this and everything become about the way you look and you know it was hugely damaging for everyone and I thought I'm so tired of reality stars and even new stars you know there's a lot of new stars in the UK that are only there because they're pretty I'm going to be honest mm. um, everything for, for young women is about the way that they looked and I was like but women are more than that. We're much more than that. You know, we can be prime ministers. We can be, 
so much more, but the, the, the TV is just only pinning us down, especially women of my age, in, in one direction. So I said, you know, I'm going to do this reality show and, be, and, and hopefully show other people. Like, it's not about how you look, it's about what you can, what you can bring to the world, what your mind can do, what, you know. And so that's one of the reasons why I wanted, I kind of convinced myself to do it. So basically the gist of the show was we were split into two groups. We had the rulers that lived in the penthouse and we had the grafters that lived in the basement. And the rulers would get to like set the work shifts, they were living in luxury, they could do whatever they want. Whereas the grafters living in the basement, we had like no hot water, I mean no hot water, no <laughs> food, it was literally just bread rolls and this like potato peel soup that was like in it, like inedible. Ooh. And we were living in like, so we didn't know what the time was, um, so there was no concept of time, so we didn't know what day it was or anything, like we couldn't go outside unless we had to go to our work shifts. And then we had to do the work shifts where we'd earn money for the prize fund. So mm. we'd have to do all this crazy stuff, like I ate dog food, I got oh. electrocuted, I had to lick plates clean. Oh. One time we were like baggage reclaimed because it was it was all like um, done after like industries. So like, you know, we were dog food testers. And one of them we were baggage reclaimed, it's probably my favourite one, and we had to like run on the treadmill going backwards <laughs> and like throw <laughs> cases in. Or like we were bricklayers one time and had to like run across little beams and like stack up bricks. And the, the worst one for me is, you know, I, I could do, do the dog food, like the dog food was doable. Like, it was rancid, but it was doable. Mm. The worst one was we were in, like, a thing, and we had to, like, pick up bugs and, like, put them in a hole. Ooh. And the first one, it was, like, snails, right? So they're, like, hard and they don't move. And we're like, this is fine. The second one, all of these, like, cockroaches started, like, pouring out of the oh. walls, like, every hole in the wall. It was horrifying. Um, so we had to do that, and we had to succeed in these work, work shifts to build money for the prize fund. But the catch is only the rulers can win the prize fund. So the grafters who actually get the prize fund can't win it but the grafters would vote each other up to become rulers and the rulers had to eliminate each other like the apprentice style in like this big red room so you best believe I channeled my inner Maggie T for that one. <laughs> Excellent. Um, <laughs> so that's so super fun um, but yeah it, it was just crazy um, it was it was very weird because it was very much like British politics in, in a way that all of the strong women were eliminated first but I was smart enough to, um, so the game is as soon as you got up to, to, to the uh, the rulers, you can get eliminated from the game. Mm. Whereas if you're a grafter, you couldn't get eliminated. So if you were tough enough to last it out in the basement, which most people weren't, so what I did is I stayed in the basement the longest of everyone, and then I just went up to the penthouse like the time before the final, because it was like fantastic. it means I wouldn't get eliminated because I was safe in I was safe in. in so well, although I had to eat all this dog food and all that <laughs> stuff, and like you know, you kind of got used to like cold showers and like bread rolls I think I lost like seven kilograms in two weeks so not advisable but um <laughs> but it was, it was great so it was it was a great time and so I did that and then but it was the most fun I've ever had I'm so glad that I did it but I kind of wanted to do it to sort of you know yeah. bring a different sort of reality tv star than the people you get on Love Island you know I was like but I was obviously the villain of the show um mm. and I think one of my favorite articles I actually have it on, on my wall and was written about me in the Daily Mirror. So obviously we didn't have any like contact with the outside world, but um, when I finished the show, like, the directors come to me and was like, just to let you know, like all the press has obviously been about you. And I was like, yeah. And my favorite one, and I've got it on my wall because I'm so proud of it, it was, um, Rise and fall viewers horrified at controversial contestant. <laughs> and it's like the best one. Like, it's like those of articles, like they're turning you off because I'm in the show. But it was great. But I, yeah, I had all of the press. So yeah, it was good fun. It was, yeah, it was great. That sounds like 
the best time. I mean, that I think what you've just told me about your strategy just um, epitomizes you, doesn't it? Hard work, ambition, toughing it out, waiting it out because you know that eventually it will pay off. I, I mean, that is the most extraordinary show. I'm going to have to go um, and watch it now. <laughs> it sounds it's, amazing. It's mental. It's mental. I don't know who and how they came up with it, but yeah. It's so clever. And it, it's, uh, it's interesting you bring up sort of how all the press was about you. Um, I looked into that and I saw a bit of that stuff. Viewers were horrified at, at Sophie Kukoran. It, it's like leftists, because it's only, I, I would imagine that most people who watched the show loved you, yeah. for instance. It's a noisy minority of people who like to kind of complain about things. They can't stand conservatives having any kind of mainstream platform, can they? No, no. As soon as you put a conservative on there, they just, they just go mental. Um, but hey, they're, if, they're, if that's getting, you know, some viewers reading that article and then looking into conservatism or Mm. looking into me, then I'm winning at the end of the day, do you know what I mean? Exactly. No, I think it is absolutely phenomenal and I cannot wait to go and find and watch Rise and Fall. It sounds so interesting. And now look, speaking of, as we mentioned earlier, Brexit and people standing up to the establishment, the man who is famous for freeing Great Britain from the globalist clutches of the European Union, that is uh, Nigel Farage, of course, has recently made headlines again. The former UKIP boss, he took to social media immediately after receiving a horrifying letter from Coots, his commercial bank, and rightly so. The letter declared the bank's intentions to close Farage's accounts because of his dissenting political views. And it was later revealed that executives at Coots, when discussing whether to shut Farage's accounts, described him as, quote unquote, xenophobic and racist. Sophie, how is this that a group of woke corporate elites in a bank's boardroom can interfere with the personal lives of those that disagree with these hopelessly left-wing things that they think and espouse? Well, the thing is that what's really interesting about this is that these people that are doing that think that they are good people. And I'm like, well, let's just think back to other examples where people have had their banks shut down because of political censorship. That's something you'll find in, you know, dictatorships, mm. fascists, the thing that they claim that they are very against. They want to close Mr. Farage's bank account because he's a fascist. So <laughs> they themselves are being quite fascist, in my view. I think that's something that dictators do. Um, but the thing is, you just should never mess with Nigel Farage. Like, just don't even try. Like, he's going to mm. win every time. And I think so many people, again, this comes down to sort of working class thing. So many people are so snobbish towards... Nigel Farage. But the fact of the matter is that man has been the most successful British politician in the last two decades, having never sat foot on a green bench, having never done that. Mm. So it just goes to show that people of our background, people of our community, we don't have to go into the elite setting to please them. Exactly. We, 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 can, we can make a massive difference without doing that. And Nigel Farage has absolutely done that. And that's why the elite hate him so much, because he is a man who has never had to give them an inch, give them an inch to take anything. He's done everything on his own accord. 
and he's so incredibly successful, but it just makes me laugh that they call him a racist, xenophobic, all of this, but they are literally acting like dictators. I'm like, yeah. isn't that the people that you're supposed to be against? I don't know. Mm, I know. I mean, well, hitting people in the wallet is just about the worst thing you can do to them short of physical violence. I mean, we saw the Trudeau government um, doing it with the um, anti-lockdown, anti-vaccine um, mandate protesters for freezing their bank accounts. Um, I was astounded that the bank actually caved and, and stopped the cancellation of Nigel Farage's account. I, a couple of years ago, I don't think they would have. Do you think there has been a shift in public sentiment with woke corporations? Is the public finally starting to push back? I think Britain, to be quite honest, I do really think that we're ahead of the curve at the moment. I mean, we've got the new transfer schools guidance. We've got all of the sporting boards saying that men can no longer compete in our sports. We've got, you know, TV and, you know, pushing back against woke culture in TV, you know, starting to stop people being cancelled, mm. happening in corporations. You know, there's been a massive shift in the fight against woke culture in the UK and we are winning and I knew that we'd win. And the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, if, if you speak up enough, if you fight up enough, you can, you know, it's, it's not too big of a fight. You, we can turn the tide. We've done it in Britain and we can do it elsewhere. And I think all it just takes is everybody coming together as a community and saying, hang on a minute, this is nonsense. Why are we letting these people do this? This is just absurd. And eventually, you know, this will fizzle out because more is more is starting woke culture starting to affect the ordinary person more and more Very much it's getting so. closer to the ordinary person whereas before it was only like you know tv celebrities and, and and people that you know we perhaps would have felt very detached to and the thing that's really important about the farage saga is that yes nigel farage it happened to him it happened to one man but it's not just happened to farage it's happened to so many people through the uk but unfortunately for those people they don't have a voice they don't have a platform which is what nigel farage is trying to provide them and we're starting to see you know this woke cop we started to see you know happening in normal places it happening you know to to kids in schools at your local comprehensives you know to people watching their favorite tv star being cancelled you know to people having their own bank accounts cancelled that weren't you know massive politicians so as soon as it started to hit normal people and it wasn't just in that sort of elitist bubble anymore mm. that's when you know the tide started to turn because everyone was like hang on a minute we're not having this you know at, at, at first it seemed so prevalent but yet so detached from the ordinary life as normal people because this council culture and stuff wasn't happening to really normal people but now it started to happen you know to people losing their jobs at work because of tweets they wrote 20 years ago and their kids having to you know go to sports day and like not you know and play do the same sports day with the boys and they're not being a single girl winning mm. and all these sorts of things you know people have had enough and as soon as it starts to hit normal people around the world it's going to change, and yeah. it, is, it is changing in Britain. I think for a long time you sort, we sort of lost hope and thinking, you know, this is, you know, my generation is screwed. It's all just going to be woke stuff, and that's not the case because enough of us fought back against it. You know, we've got enough of the newspapers on our sides. We created enough of a movement to turn the tide, and I think it can happen in any country if it's happened in ours. But mm. it's important for figures like us, especially someone like me, because the woke stuff is being pushed mainly through my generation especially someone for me to put my head up above the parapet and you know look I've had to like sacrifice a lot of things to do it but it, it takes someone like me to, to come and do it because they're not going to listen to you know yeah. older people you know people in our generation are responsible for woke culture which means people in our generation need to be the ones to fix it. That's so well said and you are absolutely the individual to do it Sophie. Now 
Look, just finally, um, you and I can't possibly have a conversation without talking about Prince Harry uh, and or Meghan Markle. So the latest on poor little Harry is that the sustainable travel company that he launched in 2019, Travelist, has launched a sort of second coming, their second incarnation. But uh, unlike previous publicity campaigns, which have had Prince Harry all over them, there is just no mention of Prince Harry at all in the organisation that he launched. Do you think that these institutions have realised that actually uh, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle are quite toxic? Yeah, no, I mean, it's not just this one. I mean, look at what happened with Netflix. I mean, it's, it's the truth. But the thing I think is quite ironic, oh, Prince Harry talking about sustainable travel. I don't think I've ever <laughs> seen a human being use a private jet more in my life. <laughs> he cannot lecture anyone about the green stuff because that man flies more than pretty much anyone. So the fact that he's coming up with a sustainable travel company when he's literally hopping it on the private jet every five minutes, I think mm, perhaps that's probably why you're not the best person to front this campaign because you are the least sustainable person ever whilst <laughs> lecturing all of us poor folk on why we shouldn't drive. Um, so there we go. I think, And that's my thing with Net Zero. You know, when the likes of Meghan and Harry and all of them stop using their private jet, then perhaps I'll care. But until then, I won't. Um, so mm. I just think that. But yeah, people have had enough of them. I don't want to hear their name anymore. You know, they've tried to cling to the headlines while claiming that they want privacy. They've trashed everybody in their path. They've disrespected everyone in their path. And they're just a bunch of hypocrites, to be honest. You know, they've got absolutely zero self-awareness at all. Mm -hmm. Because you'd think if you had announced the self-awareness and you flew on your private jet every five minutes, you wouldn't create a, trans, you know, a sustainable travel company, but there we go. Mm -hmm. um, so that's just my opinion on them. I think the world's had enough of Meghan and Harry and it's about time that they have. Mm -hmm. As, as I, I think we can all agree, hypocrisy, thy name is Harry. Sophie Corcoran, you are magnificent, you are powerful, you are gorgeous inside and out. I am so thrilled and so grateful to you for coming on the show this evening. Thanks, my love. It's been a pleasure. Hopefully we see you again. Indeed.